With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Bob and Weave. Uh, we are here. This is episode 28. We are finally back in the studio, and uh, I've had Zach's pretty face. It's just right across the table from me. I am so happy to be back in the studio. <laughs> I can't Oh, I can't even explain how happy I am to be here. Me too. And we went from just me being in here all alone, all by my, my onesie for the last three months, to now there's four of us in here. We're also joined by Jordan Geiger, who is an organizer with the South Bend chapter of Black Lives Matter. So thank you, Jordan, for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. Yep. And then we also have here, the, who's sitting quietly by in the studio, his friend Kat, who's making sure that Jordan doesn't say anything silly while he's here. <laughs> <laughs> Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we asked Jordan to join us today uh, because in the wake of everything that's happening right now uh, that kind of got spurred from the George Floyd murder in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's a lot of the mud. The waters are very muddy right now on social media and the news and everything. And, and this, this event and the things that have happened from that as, you know, Zach and I being a couple of white guys, I mean, Zach has a little more, you've talked about your background before Zach, but for anybody that's just listened to this episode, can you talk a little bit about your background and how you're affected by, you know, racism and things like that? So, yeah, I mean, as I explained a couple of times, but I, I grew up in a biracial household, my stepfather, my father figure for the last so I'm 35 for the last 32 years of my life has been a black man. My sister is black. Well, my sister is biracial. My brother is biracial. Grew up that way. I mean, that's just, I knew no different, you know, but over the course of my life, I've witnessed racism over and over and over again, even though it wasn't directed at me, like I was there. I witnessed it continually. I witnessed my father being harassed by police. I witnessed my brother being harassed. I witnessed, you know, people saying horrible things to my sister. I mean, it, it's just, I, I have a different perspective, even though looking at me, like I said before, I'm, I'm a heavily tattooed middle-aged white guy. What the hell do I know? But I, I do seem to have a little different perspective because I've seen it more. Right. And, and for me, I'm the exact, I mean, I grew up, uh, I, I marched in the, the Black Lives Rally. Um, I don't know if they called it a protest or a peace march, people called it. 
but I marched through town here in Buchanan uh, a couple of days ago. And um, for me, it's just like I wanted to do something because I, I have no no frame of reference. I mean, I'm obviously a white guy. I grew up in a white family in a predominantly white town, but also in a town. One of the organizers at that event pointed out, that I think she said she was from Buchanan, that she grew up here and never felt racism. So it wasn't really on my radar because I happened to grow up in a, a small community that, you know, we had, you know, a, a few black guys in my class, you know, that, but it like wasn't a thing. Nobody cared, you know. So, you know, growing up in the ignorance of youth, it's been, you know, it, it's always seemed like everybody's talking about this racism stuff. But to me, it's like it doesn't really like like, you know, my friends, Josh and Ryan, like nobody cared what color their skin were. But then, you know, luckily with my uh, my my main career was the Truth and Justice podcast. I've now you know traveled the world and been to a lot of other places. I've, I've walked the inner cities of Baltimore and and have seen firsthand what it's like to be a minority in a place like that. You know, in the when I was in Baltimore, I was really I, I was really shocked to see there was um, the guy that I was walking around with, which showed me there's little cameras up all over the place, and they're all in the in the in the rougher neighborhoods. And he said that those cameras are there, so you and I can walk down the street just fine. But if if these all these black people that are here, if two or three of them are walking together on the street, the police will be there that quick, and they'll harass them, and they'll do stop and frisk, and they'll do all these things. And it, it it was enough to open my eyes enough to see like this is not right. This is this is a problem. I don't know what it's like to be harassed. You know, I, I tell the story sometimes how you know my Mike, our producer, when we lived, in, we used to live in a subdivision uh, in Bridgman, and we used to play airsoft for fun. As grown adults, you never believe that we were adults. But I remember one time we were in our front yard as school was getting out, chasing each other around with airsoft guns that looked like real guns. And shooting at each other, and somebody you know called the police to come check it out. And I'm standing in my yard holding this airsoft gun, and a cop comes up and taps me on the shoulder. And he's like, uh, "What are you doing?" I was like, "Oh, I'm sorry, it's a toy. We're just playing airsoft." He's like, "Well, could you not do that when people are out here?" Sure, no problem, officer. And it occurred to me later how differently that would have gone if I was a different race. And and it it it, it bothers me a lot. And what's really bothering me right now is. I want to help, and I don't necessarily know how to do that. It's almost, like, and I know there's a ton of our listeners and people out there in the world that are like this. Like, I want to help. I went to that to that march. I don't know. Did that help? I don't know what we accomplished. I knew I wanted to be there. I knew I wanted to show my support, but I, I don't really know how to help. And I also don't have a. I'm getting a better grasp on what Black Lives Matter means, but I don't fully understand it. So I, I guess a good start. Can you explain a little bit how you got involved with the Black Lives Matter chapter? And if you can give us, in, in your words, what does the Black Lives Matter movement mean? So the Black Lives Matter movement uh, started in uh, 2012, um, around the time that Trayvon Martin was murdered mm -hmm. um, by a, a rogue mob cop, essentially, <laughs> right. um, in, in Florida. Um, a lot of folks were moved uh, by that, by that, by that shooting. And uh, um, the founders um, decided that uh, they convened uh, a bunch of activists uh, from all over the country and collectively decided that they wanted to launch a movement uh, around the protection of the lives of black people. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was the origin of it was uh, the, um, the murder of Trayvon Martin. How I came in, uh, into the movement 
was that uh, I went to graduate school at the University of Missouri, Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself was also moved by uh, the murder of, of Trayvon Martin, but I was an undergrad at the time living in Greencastle, Indiana, mm-hmm. um, a small town here uh, in central Indiana. Right. Um, once I graduated, um, came back home and decided that I wanted to do more than just study. Um, I was trying to find ways of getting involved locally, but there wasn't really a whole lot going on. Uh, so I decided to go to grad school. I went to the University of Missouri in Columbia uh, and started looking at different groups to find out what was going on because I arrived there in the summer of well, August of 2015, which was a year after Mike Brown was murdered in Ferguson, Missouri. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I found an organization uh, in St. Louis and um, a lot of the members were native uh, to Ferguson. Uh, so just by way of getting involved with that organization, I was able to organize a l- around a lot of cases that involved uh, officer misconduct and police brutality more generally. That was a eye-opening experience. Um, you know, you, you think you, you know what's happening out there, but you really kind of like have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, uh, there were cases in um, Oklahoma City, for example, where um, a man who I worked with, he had lost both of his sons. Both of his sons were murdered by the police 10 months apart. Oh, my oh God. Man. Yeah. His last living son, they claimed that he was burglarizing a house. They were in pursuit of him. He ran across the street or down the street some ways, hid behind a trash can, and they said that he uh, brandished a gun and pointed a gun at the officer, which prompted the officer to shoot. Uh, his father's attorney had requested the body camera uh, footage or the dash camera footage because I don't think they had body cameras. Mm-hmm. Plus the dash camera footage. Uh, the chief of police was fighting them on the release of, uh, of that footage. They were eventually able to get it. The attorney reviewed it and she said something seemed a little odd about it. So she hired um, a video analysis expert. I don't know the proper term. And this person had worked for the FBI and a number of other governmental agencies. Mm-hmm. And he had determined that this was one of the most doctored videos he had ever seen. They had literally doctored a gun into oh. the boy's hand. They edited a gun. Edited a head. gun into his, into his hand. Yeah. So seeing, seeing, um, you know, meeting, uh, Mike Brown's family, working around a number of cases such as that, uh, I, I just figured that being a graduate student just wasn't enough. I mean, I was doing well, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't making a whole lot of money, but I was like, man, you know, I can always come back and, and finish my degree. You right. Know, right now, I think I'm best, uh, my, my purpose right now was to really be in the streets with people and to organize around, uh, officer misconduct. And so I dropped out, um, went back down to St. Louis, um, and kind of just felt like there was a lot of, chaos um organizations there were sort of there was a lot of infighting mm-hmm. there was a lot of money that had come down into uh, missouri uh, because of uh just the, the overall situation right like right. just money that poured in for programs poured in for organizations and folks were fighting over money so i said okay you know i'm, I'm just ready to move on and i was a little bit traumatized uh, because i was mainly based on st louis avenue um in, near downtown st louis and there was a 15-year-old kid named Jareva Scruggs who was murdered not too far from where I was. And I was just spent at that point. I was like, I've, I've got to get out of here. Right. So I moved back home to South Bend. Um, upon my return, um, I found out that uh, there was a, a, a 17-year-old uh, kid who had been beaten in his sleep by an officer named Aaron Nepper, who's an officer on the South Bend Police Force. Um, he was beaten by him in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved back to South Bend in 2016, August of 2016. Mm-hmm. In July, 
uh, just before I arrived, a federal grand jury had ruled that his, him and his family's uh, civil and constitutional rights had been violated and awarded them a, a grand total or sum of $18. So obviously- You've there. got to be shitting me. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. So obviously many in the community were devastated uh, because they had been going through this process for four years only to get $18. And the reason why they got such a small amount of money is because uh, the jury essentially said that, well, you're saying that there's all this like mental and psychological damage, but there's no medical evidence showing that. And the reason why they didn't seek out medical attention is because they didn't have medical insurance. They didn't have a way of paying for it, right? So that moved me. We started a campaign uh, really to raise awareness around uh, Aaron Nepper's record uh, because he has multiple cases of misconduct where Mm -hmm. he has uh, violated the rights of many, many, many uh, citizens. Um, At one point, I heard he had like around 30 30 or so complaints against him. Uh, So we were organizing uh, around a fire Nepper campaign. We understood that he couldn't they couldn't retroactively go back and fire him because they kind of gave him a slap on the wrist when it all first happened. But we wanted to make the community aware of the fact that he was a problem and that he needed to be watched and he should not be on our streets. He's not fit to, to serve the South Bend community. So that campaign went on uh, for a while and we decided that it was smart to form a group around the Black Lives Matter movement, given the fact that they had a national platform, they had a national voice, really an international voice, to be honest with you. Right. Um, and so we just started having discussions from there. And, uh, you know, we were organizing around things such as housing, education, economic development, policing. We had called for a a civilians review board. Uh, We had called for body cameras, uh, which had already been called for by the South Bend Common Council, which is our city council Mm -hmm. back in 2014. uh, After Michael Anderson, um, I think it was a 29 year old black man, either late 20s or early 30s, um, was he died in police custody. Essentially, they said that he was. resisting arrest he was running away from the officer um and when they caught him he allegedly stuffed uh, stuffed a bag of dope down his throat Mm -hmm. and so the officer tried to remove the bag by sticking a straw down his throat to pull it up and he choked and died over a substance by the way where we're sitting right now is perfectly legal now right which is a whole other topic right yep um, so, yeah, so we had just uh, continued to uh, organize and uh, work around issues. But we caught a lot of national attention last year after uh, Eric Logan, a 54-year-old ma- black man, was murdered by an officer named Ryan O'Neill um, on Father's Day or mm-hmm. the night of Father's Day. Uh, they There were allegations that he was out burglarizing cars, that he had stolen a purse um, in, a, in a radio or a stereo or, of some kind, and he had a knife on him. Uh, but most people in the community didn't believe that story because he wasn't known to carry a knife. It's kind of like, okay, it's South Bend. You know, like what person who lives in a community with high crime would carry around a knife instead of a gun? Right. And he wasn't known as someone who, uh, and they've openly said this, he wasn't known as somebody who would steal, but he was known to, you know, maybe sell weed or something like that. Right. You know, so if they were like, okay, if you would have said that he would have had some drugs on him, we would have believed that. Right. But you're saying he had a knife. You know, you're telling us that the person wore this shirt, but he was actually wearing this color shirt. So there was just all of this suspicion uh, around uh, that case. Well, we started demanding that uh, Ryan O'Neill be fired. Uh, Aaron Nepper was also, or Officer Aaron Nepper was also involved in that case. So can I, can I back up just yeah, for a second? Sorry, yeah. Just to, just to, just to finish that. So what was the conclusion? They ended up killing him. Yeah. How did, how did that go about? We kind of, we kind of diverted. Oh, I'm so the- sorry. Yeah. 
So they claim that he approached um, Ryan O'Neal with a knife, mm-hmm. which prompted Ryan O'Neal. He told him to step back, which prompted him uh, to fire at him when he shot him the first time. Uh, as I guess, as he was going down, he threw the knife and the knife hit <laughs> Ryan O'Neal on his arm, which cut him, which prompted him to fire again and ultimately kill him. Once he knew the knife. If that story was true at that point, right. he knows the knife is no longer a threat. It's not in his hands anymore. Right, right. And he shot and killed him. Yep. So the community was obviously outraged uh, because Eric Logan was very well known on the west side of South Bend. And, it, you know, just it just hurt a lot of folks. And so we just started aggressively organizing uh, our mayor at the time. Uh, Pete Buttigieg was running for president on the Democratic ticket. And so the news media just swarmed South right. Bend trying to find out more about Mayor Pete's record around his history of policing, and about the case of Eric Logan. And so things just sort of took off from there. We were in the national spotlight. Uh, we went around and we actually traveled the country bird-dogging Mayor Pete. We were supported by the Black Lives Matter Global Network mm-hmm. and a number of other organizations, uh, LGBTQ organizations, uh, Black Voters Matter in the South. They also engaged in campaigns to bird-dog him in cities where they were, uh, where they're stationed. Um, and so that's how we became an official chapter because we got a lot of national attention. Okay. Uh, the uh, executive director saw that we were serious about our business and that uh, we were well organized. And so, yeah, now here we are. That's very good. And um, now, can you can you break down f- for not just my audience, our audience, but but us as well? What is bl- the Black Lives Matter movement about? What are the what are the goals of the organization? Because you know, if you Depending which news you're watching, you know it's it's a it's a it's a radical mm-hmm. terrorist group. To you know, it's right. the it's saints on the other side. But what what is from your perspective? What does the Black Lives Matter actually mean? What are we trying to accomplish? Yeah, so the Black Lives Matter movement, um, which is global, is really about firming the the lives and humanity of Black people. Um, it's about empowering us. It's about ensuring that we get the investment that we need in our communities. Um, it, it aims to uh, fight for reparations for black folks, given the history of um, slavery and genocide against bl- uh, black and indigenous peoples in this country. Um, so that's that's really uh, in a, at a broader level what uh, the movement uh, is about. Now, we do have a policy platform. Uh, there's a, a. I guess what you would call another organization, but it's all it's all connected. It's a coalition of organizations under the banner of Black Lives Matter, but it's called the Movement for Black Lives. And they have a very uh, detailed policy platform that calls for uh, divestment and investment, which is divest from the police, divest from institutions that are destroying black bodies, and invest in institutions uh, that are going to empower us, invest in our communities, invest in black businesses, invest in our public education. Um, So that's essentially what the movement is about. And that's why you see so many folks in the streets right now with Black Lives Matter uh, signs it's because they really are out uh, on the forefront uh, doing the hard work of fighting for communities across this country. Okay. So, so right now, the situation we're in now with, you know, in the, in the wake of George Floyd's mm-hmm. murder, obviously we are, we're, I guess let me give you my perspective. I'll let Zach, Zach chime in too. My frustration is, so I, I'm an outsider in just about every way. I'm politically, I'm an independent. Mm-hmm. I, I, I very much don't believe in either party. Mm-hmm. I think they're both extremely corrupt. And I think there's a lot of lip service mm-hmm. and not a lot of, a, a lot of action. And so for me, my frustration is what I'm seeing now mm-hmm. is 
people are taking to social media mm-hmm. and they are and they're and they're taking to the streets. And and I also want to make clear that I think it's very important to to draw a line between protesters mm-hmm. and rioters. Right, right. You know, the, the you know, I th- I think that you know the 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 spin that gets put on it is that these protesters are not peaceful, they're rioting. Mm-hmm. And from my perspective, from the protest I was at and from and from mm-hmm. what I've seen is there are protesters and then there are oppor- opportunists mm-hmm. that are just taking advantage of a situation and are are rioting and causing all this violence and all that. Yeah. Um, so I don't see those as the same group. Mm-hmm. But what I'm getting, I, I see the the protests, I see everything on social media, and from being this outsider looking at it, I just keep. I, I had a long conversation with my nephew the other day. He was just he's early twenties. He's just getting into politics, and he's you know he, he's posting every reposting everything he can mm-hmm. post about Black Lives Matter. And it's like, man, I love you. I love that you're wanting to get involved, but I feel like this isn't the way because mm-hmm. what I've experienced in my forty one years of life, mostly in the last twenty of that, is every time something like this happens, we go through this same cycle. Right. Right. Where it's everybody and and. and and then, and then it, it, inevitably it turns political to where, you know, it's the Republicans fault and it's the, you know, the Republicans say it's the Democrats fault and, and they all, you can pull talking points, you know what I mean? Off of anything, you know, the Republicans, mm-hmm. the Democrats can say the Republicans aren't doing enough and, and, you know, the, the president isn't, a, is, you know, he, he's encouraging more violence and he's doing this. And then on the Republican side, they can say, look, we're all these, these cities where all these things are happening. They're being governed by Democrat mayors. So the, there's the problem over over there, but the reality is, me like nobody's doing anything. I think what's going to happen, is, what I don't want to happen, is for this explosion of social media, explosion of marches all over all over the place, and the protests, and then two weeks from now, a hurricane blows through Florida, and the news cycle shifts, and then it just goes away again. Yeah. So how do we make it not go away again? What what can we do that's actionable? Right. So. The first thing that you can do is really support your local uh, uh, Black Lives Matter chapters if you have one in your city. That's the that's the first thing that you need to do because mm-hmm. uh, those folks are organizing aggressively and they need all the resources and support they can get. So even if it's you cook a meal for them, you know, you put some gas in their tank, you donate a little bit, uh, whatever you can do is is helpful. Pay for them to get a massage. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it all it all it all helps. Uh, the reason why you are seeing this sort of um, ebb and flow, I guess I'll call it that, right? Like there's this uptick in um, uh, frustration around uh, these officer-involved murders, um, but then it sort of dies back down, right? Like the government, the state, they know that, you know, when you sensationalize these shootings, which, I mean, they're already sensational, but when you broadcast them, it's a lot, it's, it creates a lot of clickbait. It makes money right. for them, right? But it's also at the same time, it's dangerous for the establishment because let's right. say a, I don't want to be conspiracy theorist, but let's say an organization like CNN, mm-hmm. if it is truly Clinton News Network, if it's right. connected to the Democratic Party, do they want to keep public broadcasting the fact that their Democrat controlled cities are on fire, that people are protesting their mayors, right? That people are calling them out. Absolutely not. They want to find a way to stifle that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can go to a protest, let's say, in Buchanan, right? Mm-hmm. And you can say, okay, I'm out here, but what are we protesting about? I mean, obviously George Floyd, but what's going on here? Like you asked the question, like, okay, you know, is there racism here? Like, is there racism around? Folks don't really know uh, what to do because there's not enough organizing. And that's why we need to make sure that we are organizing as much as we can around concrete demands. So be it a civilian review board, be it body cameras, uh, be it dash cameras, 
or better training. Um, we need to be doing that. Now, See, right, that's that's mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. Like that to me, like th- these are actionable steps that can help because it was, you know, and I'll go to the next one. I'll go to everyone I can go to. I was a wonderful experience, but my 14 year old daughter went with my wife and I to the March and on the right back, she's like, so like, what did we, what did we do? Like, what, yeah. what did we do? Right. Did that help something? And it's like, I but don't it, know. But it does. It, right. But it does though, because when they see that people in all corners of the United States are out in the streets because they are upset and enraged by what they saw on social media or on TV, um, it, it draws awareness to the issue. I don't think we've had this much energy really since probably Mike Brown, um, maybe Sandra Bland. Right. Um, but I feel like really not since uh, Mike Brown. Since Ferguson. Yeah, yeah, since Ferguson, really. That was the first, you know, real rebellion, in my opinion, that sort of set it off. Um, so those, you know, you can organize around those material uh, demands. Now, what the movement for black lives is calling for right now is the defunding of the police. A lot of people don't understand what that means. Like, what does that mean? Like, yeah, that is a little confusing to me. Yeah. So I'll explain what it means and I'll, and I'll use um, the city of South Bend. As and before study. we get there, I, I, I want to go back to what you were saying. Is I think that's one of the big things is we are, we are all starting to take these steps mm-hmm. to, to right the wrongs, except for a lot of people don't know how to finish the steps. Right. You know, right. there's so exactly, many steps yeah. we can take, you know, like last week we did the, the, the social media blackout, mm-hmm. which was great. I mean, a lot of us participated. I participated in it. A lot of people participated in it. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it raised awareness, but then we need a follow through. You know, yeah. and, and we need to find out how to promote that follow through. Yeah. Well, it was actually problematic for organizers. Uh, yeah, I on did the see that because of the, the hashtag, right? People yeah. were using Black Lives Matter, right, right, trying to be supportive. But what right. it did is it pushed all that content down. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw that that became a big issue with that. Yeah. So you have, so again, you have this like groundswelling of support and energy, and folks want to get involved. So we've received thousands of messages, uh, folks all over the country. How do I get involved? How do I get involved? I'm sure they're messaging, you know, the foundation, uh, which is the larger um, uh, organization uh, about getting involved. I'm, I know folks are emailing individual chapters, but the problem is, is that Black Lives Matter is one of the most attacked uh, organizations or mm-hmm. networks in the country. So we're watched by the FBI. You know, we're, we're constantly guarding against infiltration because we don't want folks to enter um, into the movement and then they bring chaos, right? Mm-hmm, right? So one of the dangers is like, for example, there was, um, a protest in Mishawaka and it was labeled Black Lives Matter. Now there's only three, we're the only official Black Lives Matter chapter in the state, but there are, are also three other or two other groups, one of which in Gary used to be a chapter. So there's only really three legitimate Black Lives Matter groups in the whole state. So they had a protest and I had to, I ended up going and really had to kind of help to, organize it and arrange it because well now if anything bad happens oh black lives matter march right mm-hmm. goes goes wild but it's not a black lives matter march it was you know a, a group of young women who were moved by what they saw and wanted to have a protest or a demonstration of some kind and things can go off you can have agent provocateurs in the crowd who are fbi informants or or whatever mm-hmm. who will throw rocks and and some some of the activity that we're seeing those are um Agent provocateurs, you know, who are trying to incite violence against black folks. Mm. But then at the same time, you know, Dr. King said that a riot is uh, the language of the unheard. So we don't 
tell people how they can respond to their violence, but we certainly don't encourage rioting and we don't um, encourage folks to loot. But we understand that uh, folks are feeling a lot right now and they people respond to violence in different ways. Right. That's that's what's so tough is that's the first way. And it's almost predictable human behavior Mm -hmm. that this is what as soon as the protests started, you could you can you know what's going to happen. There's going to be there's going to end up being rioting and looting, and that's going to shift the narrative, and that's going to give fuel to the other side talking points of like right, like right. look here's your Black Lives Matter movement. Here's a guy walking out of Walmart with a big screen TV. Right. What does that have to do with Black Lives exactly, Matter? Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. But then that's why again I go back to like these are those aren't the people that I want to be attached to. They're they're not. I don't think they're part of the 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 protest. These are. They're just using the opportunity mm-hmm, to go mm-hmm. to do that. Uh, but I do want to circle back. You started to touch on the defund the police. Yes, I wanted to go back to that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. because that's something that, you know, on its face, mm-hmm. I disagree with, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure I totally understand it. So if, if you could explain that, yeah, like, yeah. what what is that really asking for? Yeah, I want to give you a practical example of South Bend. So in the city of South Bend, we actually have an officer shortage. Um, in their 2020 budget, uh, which they passed last year, they had budgeted for 245 officers. Presently, they have uh, cur- currently on the force, they have 223 officers. Mm-hmm. What we are arguing is don't spend more money on hiring police because you see violence in our communities. Let's instead shift those dollars away from the police department and towards programs that can help to alleviate the violence. So let's hire violence interventionists, people who are from and rooted in the community, who have uh, um, respect in the community, and who can enter into situations that are violent or about to be violent and de-escalate them without the police having to come out. The police, we've had a number of meetings with police officers, and they've all expressed how exhausted they are, how tired they are, how traumatized they are. Okay, if you are feeling all of this wear and tear, then there should be something in place to kind of help you out in a way, right? Like so that you don't have to respond to all of these different crises. And, and that can be done. I mean, it was done in, in California. There's a, a program called uh, the Peacemaker Fellowship that was put forward by an, an organization called Advanced Peace, where they hire, you know, street guys, train them up, built relationships with them, empowered them uh, by giving them a stipend every month, by taking them overseas to experiencing that, that they had never saw before. And they use those folks, and they started out with five guys. They use those folks um, over the course of, I think, 10 years to, or eight years to bring down the violence by building relationships with people, by checking in on guys who they know, because they target people who are considered active shooters, people who are doing the shooting in the community. So they build, they use, they have these guys go out and build relationships with them and to steer them away from crime. And they actually reduce violent crime in the, in the, I think it was uh, Richmond, California, I believe, by 76%. Oh, wow. 76%. And even in our own work, I mean, and we're not, I'm not a trained like crisis interventionist or anything like mm-hmm. that. Uh, but over the uh, last year, we had uh, Black Voters Matter come. They were on a tour going around registering folks in communities of color. And uh, they decided to come to South Bend because we had a lot of national attention. And someone had tweeted at them like, hey, can you stop by South Bend? So they came. We were in a low-income housing project. We had registered all the adults to vote. We had fed kids. It was fun. It was festive. We were playing music. I mean, it was just like beautiful. It was like, oh my gosh, like this is magical, right? Mm-hmm. Well, as they were pulling off, 
you know, they were, we were all waving at the bus, bye, 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 you know, they're in this big, huge, nice bus that's mm-hmm. like beautifully decorated. Well, once the bus pulled off and left, there was a fight that broke out uh, between two neighbors who lived down the street from each other. Uh, two women came down, jumped one woman, and they went back to their homes. The woman came out. She went down to go fight them, called her family. They were pulling up. And as they were uh, nearing their home, we decided we just ran down there and got in the middle of it all. And just, you know, still with our arms out and mm-hmm. just, you know, walked. In. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I mean, you right. worked in public safety. You understand de-escalation. Right. And it, you know, the, the situation calmed itself down. You know, she went back to her house. She was visibly angry, mm-hmm. but there wasn't any more of a, any more altercation. There was no fight or anything that, that broke out for a second. Time. Right. But when the police came, the officer was like demanding, what's her name? I need to talk to her. I need to know what's going on. We're like, hey, you know, like. Councilwoman Regina Williams Preston <laughs> is helping yeah. to de-escalate the situation. She's talking with her, trying to get her to calm down. The woman is not in a position at this moment, mentally in a position uh, to talk. Right. You know, let her cool down because if she comes back out here, she's going to, you know, her general is going to go again. She's around police officers. She'll get hyped back up. So he just demanded that, that he talked to her. And we just, we looked at him and said, look, like right now, you are escalating the situation and making it worse mm-hmm. when we are trying to calm things down. You all have 20 cop police vehicles out here right now for a fight with between three people and really two women. Right. 20 vehicles. See, and, and that's, I don't disagree with your point. I think that that programs, especially if, there, if there's case studies where it's, where it's worked, I mm-hmm. think that, that that would be an incredible asset to add to the, to the system. My concern with, you know, like, as you said, being in public safety, and I was a firefighter, mm-hmm. I wasn't a, a cop, I worked with cops, but what I know is it takes training and equipment to do your job properly. And so I, I see the issue with the police as being a lack of that. You guys were able to step in and de-escalate that situation. Those officers... De- most officers don't go through very much de-escalation training. It's like a little piece in the police academy. There, we actually had uh, on the Truth and Justice podcast. We had a case where um, there was a uh, an officer that was very getting very violent with. It happened to be a student of mine at the college who videoed it and was screaming at this kid and threatening to you know and, and pulled him out of the car. Long story short, we did what I wanted to do something positive. So we did a fundraiser and we raised a couple thousand dollars to fund a de-escalation course to come down to the city of Niles and for all the officers to go to go through it. And actually and, and we ended up and we ended up doing like a train the trainer so we could get one of their officers trained to teach it. Right. And make that part of their curriculum. So, you know, if, if you my concern with that is if you shift funding away from them, the first place they're going to cut, they're not going to take people off the street. The place that they're going to cut is they're going to cut training. They're going to cut equipment. Equipment that I think needs to be mandatory in every police officer mm-hmm. and needs to be maintained so it's always working are body cams mm-hmm. and dash cams so so w- when i hear like the d- like to shift the money from the police to that i love this part of it right mm-hmm. i love the idea of of the peacekeepers within the community mm-hmm. to help and de-escalate but i fear that taking the money from the police I said they're going to leave the same officers on the street they're going to stop training them they're going to stop giving them proper equipment and then I feel like it, ultimately the problem could end up being worse. Mm-hmm. 
Fred, what do you think? How do you feel about that? I mean, I think that's a, a, a valid criticism. Um, but, you know, I think it can be also circumstantial. Mm-hmm. Um, and like in South Bend, the reason why we were able to de-escalate that situation is because we are from the community. We understand right. how, how our people are mm-hmm. and how we react to things and how we can calm them down by just, one, being calm, actively listening to what they're saying. Right. You know, and responding in a way like affirming them, like, I hear you. I understand mm-hmm. what you're saying. You know, I understand. Just calm down. You know, a lot of these officers, they had never, they have never lived. They've never lived in these communities. Right. I think about 70% of our force does not live in the city of South Bend. Right. So they, they're coming into these communities, not understanding the culture, not understanding the dynamics, not understanding how people, not understanding the trauma, not understanding the daily uh, lives of, of folks. I mean, they may, they see things obviously from, right. from the standpoint of being a police officer and having to be in the community to, to serve and protect people. Uh, but they don't understand what goes on within our households and, and just our everyday lives. Right. Now, I think, um, the point that you, that you, that you raise, um, is, is strong. It's, a, it's a good point. Um, but, you know, the, the relationship is strained for a reason. Mm-hmm. And when you have a strained relationship like that, from what, from my experience, what I've seen in South Bend is they show up when everybody's dead. They show up when the bad stuff has already happened. Right. When they're tipped off to things, they don't come in and try to deescalate. No, they let folks do what they do. And then they come and they come in with the cameras and the news and they say, oh, look at how bad, you know, how, look how bad this is. This mm-hmm. is why we need more money. This is why we need more police officers, because it's so bad. This past weekend, um, myself and Kat were um, at, I guess, what we call like a stunt line. It's like a bunch of cars on the west side. They go and drive down a particular street. You know, folks are drinking, hanging out. It's like kind of a summertime ritual. Right. Well, things have been getting a lot out of hand uh, lately. So. It's building up. You know, people are posting about it on social media. Oh, it's live. It's live. It's live. Now, there was already just a a major shooting out there. So, Uh you know, that something's bound to happen. So I wanted to go out just one to see my friend kick a little bit, but also just to keep eyes on. Okay, we have people who are affiliated with the police department. We have a group violence intervention uh, program that Mm -hmm. is connected with the South Bend Police Department. Okay, we're at we're we're out there looking around like, okay, well, where are these interventionists? They keep talking about you know, these programs that they have, right, to like shift the city away from um, hardline policing. But they're not out here right now. And the police aren't out here right now. Mm-hmm. How do you have folks driving down the wrong side of the streets, folks driving on <laughs> in schoolyard grass? You know, they're young people. They're drinking. You know, they're, they're certainly out of hand. But there's no one out here to deescalate. But I bet you everyone, once the fight happens, oh, they're all going to show up. They're all going to arrest people. Right. Like mm-hmm. there's going to, you know, there's going to be chaos. And then they'll have a news line that says, oh, my gosh, I've been police, you know, have to deal with so and so shootings. But really how we just got in there when it when it first started or when it started to pick up, like we could have de-escalated that. We have 50 people who just walked out in the middle of that and said, hey, go home, everybody. Mm-hmm. Like this is over with. It would have been over with. Right. It would have been over with. But we don't we don't see that in our in our in our communities. And so that's that's why the relationship is so strained, because they we honestly feel like, well, they want the fighting to continue to happen. I mean, we don't see the adequate investments in education. Mm -hmm. We don't see adequate investments in our mental health services. Uh, We don't see uh, job skills training programs in our recreational centers and in our schools. So what else are you leaving people to do who are poor? Forty percent of black households in the city of South Bend have zero liquid assets. Absolutely no money. 
almost 75% of black families in South Bend live at or below the poverty line. When you have that kind of uh, deprivation, you're going to see violence, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not the, it's not the job of the officer, right? Like to get, do, to do away with the uh, violence, but don't come to us and say, oh my gosh, like these community folks, they're, you know, these folks in these neighborhoods, they're so violent. They're so violent. We need more officers. We need this. When really there's just different things that we can do instead of policing. Right. Okay. Yeah. So we're, we're trying to get folks to reimagine, you know, how we, how, how, um, city, local governments and communities, um, interact with each other without police intervention. Certainly there's cases where you can have, where police are necessary, but there's also been studies that have shown that, well, if only 5% of your calls really need a police response, like seriously need a police response, like, do we need to have so many officers, you know, on payroll all the time, paying all this overtime? Right. So, yeah. And I think for me, and and this comes from an, from an ignorant point of view, I'm going to say that is that that defunding the police is just such a harsh term that I think mm-hmm. that's where it it steps on people's nerves yeah, that's where it gets yeah. people which I I at one point of that makes sense you mm-hmm. want those people to have the buttons pushed and you want to see it but then you have the people fighting it because it does seem like such a harsh term yeah so it, that's I guess that's where it like kind of gets me is when when I heard the defunding the police I didn't think of it the way you just explained mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. You know, you, I, I think of defunding the police. Right. Well, and I think that a lot of people that are sharing the hashtag and are talking about it don't understand what it actually means either. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because it has to be done on a practical level, right? Mm-hmm. And and a lot of folks live in cities and areas where they're not exposed to organization or organizers who are doing this work actively. Right. Um. So it's hard for people to understand that. I absolutely love the way you explain it. It makes a lot more sense to me than just... And there's more examples, by oh, the way. I, I mean, those I, are just a few that I'm applying to mm-hmm, South Bend. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I, like I said, I, I like I like the idea. I like the the out of the outside the boxness of it. Uh, I agree with Zach that you know I, I wish the hashtag was a little different because you know, defund the police is what's happening is immediately walls are going up because what you really right, want right. to do is work with the police, right? Like you, as far as <laughs> no, I mean it's just Black Lives Matter is not an organization that works with the police. We fundamentally believe that uh, the police are um, an arm of the state that uh-huh. is bent on uh, destroying black bodies. The history of policing is based in slave catching. Mm-hmm. So black folks have a very complicated history uh, with police departments. So that's why we don't um, engage with the police in that way. Do certain groups and chapters communicate with, have limited communication with uh, police chiefs? Definitely. You know, we get engage in discussions around policing. I mean, we've had community action group meetings uh, where we've talked about police policy procedures, uh, training, all of that. Right. And mm-hmm. we are sitting next to officers, you know, who are armed. We are engaging right. with them in dialogue. So it does happen, right? It's just, it just, it's, it's circumstantial, right? right? It just depends. Now, South Bend's a small community. So you can, we can do that. But by and large, BLM members try to distance themselves from police officers. But we, we have people like Councilwoman Regina Williams Preston, who is, or at least at the time was in a seat of power, who she can hear what we're saying and then go and talk to the police and say, Hey, okay, right. this is where they're coming from. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, to, to me, it feels like, so say, for example, what you guys are discussing happens, the defunding the police where they take some money from the police budget and put it into this like, pe- to me, like th- that, there has to be some intercommunication there. There has to be a work together with the police in order for that to go mm-hmm. well. Right. You know what I mean? Like, like they, they can't be completely 
separate. So, so it, it seems to me that in order for something like that to happen smoothly, mm-hmm. there's there's got to be a way to work with the police to come to that compromise. Right. If that right. makes sense. Yeah. Like I said, it, it's all very circumstantial. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, these conversations, they, they do happen right now. I may not be sitting with Chief Raskowski, who was the chief of police for the South Bend. I'm not sitting in his office and having a one on one conversation with him. Right. That's not about to happen. But if we're at a, a city council meeting and I'm on the mic, you know, and you're doing your budget, your, your budget presentation and I go up and I, resp- you know, I comment and then you respond, then we are having, we are engaging in a kind of dialogue. Now it's limited because of the nature of bureaucracy and government and right. Robert's rules of order, but you're hearing my perspective. I'm hearing your perspective. Sure. So we're exchanging ideas. Right. Now, ultimately I don't have, you know, I don't control the purse strings. So it's right. on the city council, the mayor, the, and the department heads to decide how that money is spent. But what we are doing is we are actively, um, we're putting ideas out there. Mm-hmm. We're putting ideas out um, as to how we can address this issue of violence without having police intervention. And, and one way to really look at it is, you know, you can take a community like this right here. I'm sure you all are investing 40 or 50 percent of your money into the police department. Now, you may be in public right. safety more generally, right, which would include, you know, the health department, firefighters, right? Um, but, you know, you all in this area, like, you don't have police driving down your street. And I'm sure, no. like, most folks here, they go to, their kids go to decent schools. You know, mm-hmm. there might be some after-school programs available. Well, in these urban communities, they don't have that. Right. And, and that's the argument that folks are making. When you look in, at these suburbs and you don't see, in, and you don't see a police presence, it's because there's resources in their communities. They have folks who own their homes and the wealth is being recycled, right? Mm-hmm, right. Like homes are being passed down. They own small businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, their kids can go to recreational centers. They have libraries that have good Wi-Fi and good working computers and activities and programs mm-hmm. for them. In these neighborhoods that we're talking about, particularly on the southeast side of South Bend, where there's no community center around for kids to go to, and this is one of the most violent communities in the city of South Bend where 40% of the population in that area is is either 19 years of age or younger and there's no community center for them what do you what do you expect and it's right. one of the poorest communities in the city right and also one of the one of the most violent and we know based on um sociological research that there's almost a one to one correlation between um an increase in poverty and an increase in crime yeah, and I, I, I mean, I've studied about that the back back in the '90s when yeah, I was yeah. in college. You know? <laughs> no, but no, but, but that's when that's when all of yeah. that powerful. I mean, what I felt like very powerful um, research was coming out was in the mm-hmm. '90s because we saw stop and frisk. We saw um, uh, what is the, the the crime bill that was rolled out, right? Like three mm-hmm. strikes and you're out. All of that legislation that came out in the '90s under Clinton, right? And it, it's it's such a cyclical problem too. You know, I used to from the fire department. We worked a weird schedule. We were 24-hour shifts and only worked nine days a month. So I used to substitute teach on my days off. And I, I taught at the uh, Juvenile Detention Center in mm. Marion County a lot you because know, they have – a lot of people don't realize there's a school in there because mm. the kids that are in there still have to finish their schooling. And I remember just getting to know the kids that were, were predominantly black that mm. were in there. And, and one kid in, in particular that you know I had kind of gotten close with over months of, of working with him, and he was about to be released, and I was just – you know, having a very naive, I guess, talk with him about, look, man, when you when you get back out there, don't come back here. Because there's one of the kids mm-hmm. that I saw last year, and then he left, and mm-hmm. then he's back again, and mm-hmm. then he left, and mm-hmm. then he's back again. And I was like, don't come back here, man. Like, get out there. Because they, they teach them, 
each of them. They, they kind of force them within the residential program in the juvenile detention center. Um, they, they have a, like a, they have to keep going up steps with their behavior before they get cycled out. So, you know, everything from when you walk into a room, shaking a person's hand and introducing yourselves mm -hmm. and, and being, you know, polite and things mm -hmm. like that. That's all part of the program. I'm like, man, like you're doing great. You're doing great in your work. You're doing great with your interactions with, with all these people. You've told me about things you want to do with your life. Mm -hmm. When you go, when you go home, take that with you and don't mm -hmm. come back here. Yeah. And I remember him just, it, it was just heartbreaking. The kid was probably 14, 15 years old crying, just saying, Mr. Rupp, I can't. He's like, if I go home to where I live, which was Benton Harbor, which mm -hmm. was, you know, a, a bad area, a, a mm -hmm. part of Benton Harbor. And I act like this. He'll get picked on or yeah, he'll he's, be targeted. Yeah. Right? I mean, his words to me were, I'll get killed. Right. right I can't right. act like this when I go home. Mm -hmm. And so they, he falls right back into the, and it, and it all, a lot of it has to do with the poverty and it becomes right. cyclical. And yeah. there's got to be some kind of intervention to help, you yeah. know, to, to help with that. And, and I love the idea of, of focusing resources mm -hmm. in a peaceful way into that area. You know, I, I still, I don't think you and I will probably see eye to eye on the defunding mm -hmm. part, but, mm -hmm. but I respect your, your, your position on it. In that, in the, the, the defund the police concept are, so say in particular, the city of South Bend that mm -hmm. you're familiar with is, is the goal in the hope to completely eliminate the police department or just to take some of the funding away from the police department? Uh, the goal, the short-term goal right now is to take funding away from the police department and to hire interventionists. Um, mm -hmm. As a public school teacher, um, and again, I'm getting these kids from the southeast side of this community. I was telling you about that. It's right. extremely violent. Is that your day job? You're a teacher? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're done now, right? Because right, yeah. it's, it's yeah. Yeah, yeah. summer break. <laughs> but um, I, I see the kids, and I'm like, whoa, okay, I see you moving closer towards gang affiliation. I mm -hmm. see that you're bringing drugs you know, into school. Some of you are bringing guns. You know, but they're just young people who are living in incredibly difficult situations. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes their father is either locked up, their mom is a single parent and, and they're struggling with multiple kids. So they're having a hard time and they don't feel like they're being heard, listened to, cared for. And so they act out in certain ways to get attention. My issue, and this goes back to the funding part for me as a school teacher, I'm like, okay, well, I've got 30 kids in this class and I've got eight kids who need serious attention, mm -hmm. serious. And if I can get those eight kids, you know, this might be the wrong term, but under control, for the lack of a better term, then I can maintain the rest of the class. Mm -hmm. But the problem with this in the South Bend, well, in the state of Indiana, is the regulations. You know, there's not enough funding to have smaller class sizes because right. these eight kids, you know, they need to be split up and put into smaller class sizes, maybe three or four kids at the time. That way they can get concentrated attention that they right. need. And that's not we, just a South Bend problem or an Indiana yeah, problem. Over, right. That's a yeah. national problem. We don't yeah. have enough s therapists. We don't have enough social workers. Mm -hmm. We have one, one social worker in our whole building. Mm -hmm. And you got kids who are dealing with all this trauma. Right. All this trauma. You have teachers who are exasperated because they just, they're tired mm -hmm. because of the, the behavior of the students, because of all the challenges, you know, and, and they're not getting paid enough. The paraprofessionals are underpaid. So a lot of times, uh, the teachers, a lot of teachers call off. Mm -hmm. And when they call off, the paraprofessionals who would normally be in the classroom assisting the teachers to help with behavior management and instruction, now they have to go and sub in a class. Right. So instead of me as a emergency permit teacher who has no experience teaching, who has no training teaching, I'm just somebody who has a degree and they are like, hey, you got a degree, can you come teach? I'm in a classroom with a bunch of kids who have uh, behavior issues that I have no training on how to deal with. 
mm-hmm. right? And I'm trying to instruct them when they've already seen five different teachers in the last year. And for right. the last two years of their education, the teachers have quit and they have not had, um, they have not really learned math. So you're sitting in a classroom being forced to learn material, right, at, at, at the right. eighth grade level when really you're more on the fifth grade level. Mm-hmm. But you've just been passed through because the system is just keeping you, keep passing you through. Right. So that money, you know, comes in. So it's just it becomes compounded and extremely complicated. And it just it, it's a recipe for disaster. And that's why we see what we see. So that's why we're saying let's spend less on policing and more on empowerment, empowering people in our community. As you say that now, I don't have any you know, firsthand experience with that, but my sister is actually a teacher for Benton Harbor. Oh, okay. And, and I, and sh- I've heard her talk exactly what you were just saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the issues you've said, you know, she literally has to create her own curriculum yeah. for the kids, but not only create it, fund it. Mm-hmm. She, she has basically funded their whole curriculum for the school year out of her own pocket for these kids. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's baffling to me. And you, and you're not making much money. Mm-mm. You know, I mean, I'll be honest here. I made less than $2,000 a month teaching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. What can I, I can't buy, snacks and games and stuff with that have to pay bills you know right right no my my i mean i'm gonna put her kind of on blast i love my sister to death but yeah i mean they don't make enough they don't hardly make any money she lives with my mother you Mm -hmm. know what i mean like Mm -hmm. she lives at home with our mother even though she's got a full-time job Mm -hmm. because i mean they don't pay her well either yeah a professional job at that yeah 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 Yeah, that requires a degree Mm -hmm. right right to get yeah yeah Yeah, and that's that's another massive issue and and man i don't i don't know what the answer is maybe it's the the defunding i my perspective on it is I, I'm I'm not that far away from your line of thinking on it. I just I just feel like the solution. I I see the same problems yeah. that you see. Mm-hmm. For for me, what what I want like if if I was to look at this and say, okay, how can I fix these situations? So let's look at George Floyd, the guy in in uh, Chauvin. Was that the guy's name? The cop in Minneapolis. Oh, I can't remember his name. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think that, you know. Here's the deal with that: is his name doesn't matter. Right. You're exactly right. And that's why I don't. You know, it should be George Floyd's name that's out there, but. You know, in his case, there, the city of Minneapolis doesn't have a policy saying kneel on somebody's neck. It doesn't have a, you know, like, like the man was not, he was violating policy. And I get, I get a little, a little frustrated when people will, will take that and be like, like not even just the police, but even the Minnesota police department is terrible. I, I look, this is the way I put it to my nephew when he was talking to me about mm-hmm. it was imagine if you opened a business and you had 20 employees. And every and all your twenty employees, you train them to do all the right things, and and it was a good company with good employees. One of those employees goes out on the street and does something racist and mm-hmm. and gets caught on video. Now, when that happens, is it your fault as the boss? Is it all of the other employees who are now getting lumped into that? You know, if somebody comes and says, "Well, your company's racist," and all the other nineteen are racist, and all that, I don't think that's the case, but I do think there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And so that for for me, I'm just I'm kind of a I'm a math guy, so I'm a puzzle. So, you know, yeah. so I'm like, okay, so how do I fix this? If I put it in that smaller little container there, how do I fix that? Yeah. And it's well, as the boss, how did I not know that that guy was like that? Exactly. How, how could I have figured this out better? Is there a pattern of behavior? What are we doing for background checks? What are we doing for psychological screening? Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then of course when you go into the police realm, it, it, so looking at a, a police department, like I said earlier. You need to. I want. I want body cams on at all times. No excuse. None of this. Because mm-hmm. I'm sure you know from doing what you do. I know from just stuff that I do. Mm-hmm. How often? Every time something controversial happens, guess what? The body camera didn't work. Mm-hmm. Or guess right, what? Right. The dash cam wasn't on or didn't yeah. work. 
Oh, I, I, I forgot to mention that that's exactly what happened in Eric Logan's case. Mm-hmm. The officer turned his body camera off. Right. And so everyone was upset about it because we had just paid millions of dollars for body cameras right. in, the, in the spring of 2018 mm-hmm. and to prevent the situation. And now here we are. There's something else that you had said. You, you use the term uh, caught on camera. Uh-huh. That's key because a lot of police misconduct is not caught on camera. Right. So when you see people coming out into the streets, it's because they've had experiences that were not caught on camera and right. they didn't understand how to navigate the system of addressing it. They say, go and file a p- complaint with the police department. Some folks don't know how to do that or they are fearful of retaliation if they were right. to go and report. So that becomes a huge, um, my apologies, that becomes a huge barrier. Um, in terms of, you know, accountability and right. transparency. You know, I have a, a friend of mine that was, um, you, you may be familiar with his name is Michael Wood. Um, he was a Baltimore cop and probably five years ago, he, he went on Twitter and just started putting basically the Baltimore police department on, mm-hmm. on, on blast and mm-hmm. was like yeah. all the things that we did. And, and I've had a lot right. of long talks with him. He's no longer with the department. Right. Um, but, but that was, that was an eye opener for me too, because again, from my not only am I a white guy. You see where I live. I live out in in a quiet little suburb. You mm-hmm. mentioned. I bet there's never. I bet if I called the police right now, they'd have to get a map to find my house. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they don't even know where we're at. Right. Um. Uh, but yeah, he was just telling me the things that he was. You know, he's like, I I never participated, but I was just as culpable. Right, because he didn't say anything. Right, and that's and that's that's the the major issue and what folks are talking about. Um, you know, you have folks in, cause you talk about like, okay, there's a small percentage of bad officers, but he said, you know, if you don't say anything, you're culpable. Right. But then we also have to get at the reasons why. So some of the things that we've pushed the city to do was, well, are you, are you doing exit interviews with officers who leave? Are you right. asking them why they, they left the force? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we go from almost 30% of our, our police force, maybe I'm exaggerating, but I think about 30% of our police force was black. And now less than 6% of it is black. Mm-hmm. How did, or maybe it was 16%. I think it might've been up 16 or 17%. And then it would drop down to less mm-hmm. than 6%. How did that happen? Did you all do exit, conduct exit interviews? Well, it was, it was because of the treatment they were experiencing in force, but also because of what they were seeing. Mm-hmm. Chief Scott Roskowski, who was again, our police chief, he's on record on CNN. When we were protesting Mayor P outside of the police station, he's on record saying, I know there's bad officers. I know there's bad officers. I know it. Okay, well, if you know there's bad officers, why don't you get rid of them? Right. And, it, and it's, it's far, and you might, you probably know this too, the politics of it as a police chief. There's yeah. so much politics involved, right? Oh, yeah. People have dirt on certain people. Officers are connected to certain folks. You know, you have a lot of folks who are on the police department whose parents, grandparents were police officers. Right. And they pass down history. They have dirt on politicians. It's because they see everything. It's two things. Know? It's, it's politics and it's the union. Oh, we didn't get to the union. So, yeah. so like I was, I was in the fire department. Yeah. I was our union president. So mm-hmm. I know damn well how the union works. So in our line of work, obviously it's different. We're not, you know, people call us to come help them in a different mm-hmm. way. Right. We, right. Usually it's a positive, it's, it's a positive experience. When, right. when the, so we didn't have those issues. But for me, what I watched for our union, I eventually stepped down. And of course I, I ended up leaving the department, but our union was just there for, it felt to me for no other reason than to protect people from doing who are doing shitty jobs, mm, mm-hmm. you know, it didn't the union never did anything great for me? I mean, I, I rose through the ranks. I was a fire chief by the time I was thirty three. Yeah, I was pretty. Oh, th- you're young now. I'm like, well, you were. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I <laughs> you're retired already. <laughs> I, I like to say that I was very good at my job, 
Clearly. But, but the but the union never helped me with anything. I never made a dime more than those guys did. Hmm. I never got an extra day off. It didn't do anything for me. I just kept just busting my ass. We had a guy that showed up to work to drive a 50,000-pound ladder truck high, way high. Hmm. And when he was reported uh, by me, by the way, as far as that, that which was why the union didn't care much for me for a long time, because he was relieving me. And I'm like, dude, go home. But I still try to do. And that's part of that, that, that blue shield thing. Same thing with the fire department. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, you to I was going to cover for him. Yeah. I told him, right. I was like, dude, go home. Mm-hmm. I'll stay, come back at noon. I'll, I'll work over for four hours, come back and you know, I'm fine. I'm fine. He just insisted. It was just eating. I was a brand new 21 year old kid firefighter. And finally I called the chief. I'm like, I, I'm, I'm worried. He's, yeah. you know, he, he's, he's high and he's at the, at the station and he ends up going through and they, they test him and his levels were through the roof and they fired him. And then the union then fought to get him his job back. Now, when he put at risk so many people's lives, it'd be mm-hmm. no different than coming to, to work drunk. Right. Um, but it, that was, that was my experience with the union. And that's like going back to what you were talking about with, you know, why don't you get rid of them? It's politics mm-hmm. and it's the unions. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, because uh, I mentioned Aaron Nepper, who is an embattled officer. He has many cases of misconduct. Desha- Deshaun Franklin, he was involved in Eric Logan's case. He beat up uh, a, a, a a white Notre Dame minted golfer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he uh, attacked uh, uh, Jonathan Ferguson, who was a Seven Eleven store clerk, mm-hmm. where him and two other officers who also embattled um, forced him to take the cinnamon challenge. And this person had cognitive uh, disabilities, mm-hmm. a differently abled person. So you have officers like that who are problematic, but they rise to the ranks of the force. So here he is now. He's already getting paid public dollars to do his job, which he's doing poorly. But then we're also paying for his education at IUSB so he can get a master's degree so he can become a captain. Now he's also being rewarded with a higher position within the union. Now he serves as the union treasurer. So now you're giving him some serious institutional power. Mm -hmm. And he's also working the night shift, which is for all of us who are from South Bend, like, we know that shift to be the worst shift, right? The most violent shift, mm-hmm. um, the most aggressive shift is probably the best way to put it. Yeah, well, yeah, there's probably a combination because there's exceptions, but for the most part, the new guys are the guys right, that right. inexperienced guys, the ones mm-hmm. get put on the night shift. It's also the time where a lot of more of the crime is happening, right, and it's right. just a it's it's just like fire and gasoline. I can imagine, yeah, that yeah. that just turns into a very a, a very cantankerous relationship between yeah. the community and the and the police department. Mm-hmm. But that but that's you know for. The, the defund the police thing, like to, like to me, I can tell you right now, it won't happen because not not that right or wrong doesn't doesn't matter. That's all a matter of opinion. Mm-hmm. It won't happen because the obviously anybody any anything that Republicans are in control of, they're fighting against anything Black Lives Matter is doing. Right, of course. The Democrats are feeding lip service to the Black Lives Matter right. movement, right. but they're not doing anything either because a big part of their vote is the fucking police union. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. and so the, the union is even controlling them, so they're. You know, mm-hmm. they'll they'll put on their African garb and take a knee in the right, yeah. in the Capitol, yeah. but they but they won't actually do anything. Right, right. You know, yeah. there there's no way, and it's already, like Biden's already come out and said, "Oh, I don't." You know, yeah. I, he can't. He right. can't come out and say that he supports that because right. they'll lose the vote. Right. You know, I I, I think we should defund Congress, <laughs> yeah. and then just restart. I like that I do too. Start yeah. over. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. could you imagine a Congress with 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 no more political parties? Where people had to actually like answer, like, oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, mm-hmm. they <laughs> that might have... be democratic. I don't know. That might be a real democracy. Yeah, yeah. you're kidding. <laughs> it's just it's 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 frustrating, and you know, and I and I 
I like the passion. Again, I like the I love the idea behind mm-hmm. adding those community. I would love to see a situation where we can better train the police department. You know, like for me, like if I went in, you know, I wasn't a police officer. I was a fire chief, though. Mm-hmm. I, I ran a public safety organization. You know, if I took over as the police chief in South Bend, you know, the first thing I would want to sit down and say, okay, we need to do something to improve our relations. And, and I would, I would get the cops on the street. I would, you know, go walk into those neighborhoods, just walk right up into these neighborhoods and apologize to the people that have been mistreated and say, we want to fix this. Let's have an open dialogue. Let's have town hall meetings. Let's talk and figure out how we can start rebuilding this. And then again, like, like having, shutting a body camera off is a fireable offense. In, you know, mm-hmm. you shut your body camera off, you're mm-hmm. gone. You shut your dash camera off, gone. No right. excuses. Right. It's a zero. What what I had as a as a fire chief in my SOG policy, I had what I called my red letter policies, mm-hmm. and so they were they were literally in our our SOG books. There were policies that were written in red, mm-hmm. and that meant if you violate this policy, we also had a red letter policy explaining that because you have to have policies for your policies. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but that policy meant if you violate this policy. You're fired. Right. You know, so for ours, one of ours was a big thing for firefighters. The biggest cause of firefighter deaths, contrary to popular belief, is car accidents. Or actually, it's heart attacks and then car accidents mm. or, or vehicle accidents with the fire trucks because nobody buckles up because we're in all our gear and stuff. Nobody wants to put a seatbelt on. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Nobody. Re- so it was, you will buckle up. There's no excuse. People weren't listening. So that red letter policy, you get into a moving fire truck at our fire station without your seatbelt on, you're fired. Mm. And whoever the officer in the rig is, has at least a week suspension with no pay mm. because it's their job to make sure. But, you know, so red letter policies about, yeah. about the body cams mm-hmm. and, and, and de-escalation classes should be, should be, uh, if, if not monthly, not weekly, monthly right. mm-hmm. classes that we could take. And then, and then working to bridge at some point, the police departments, and, and I, I will say this, it, it, there are many, many, many good cops out there. You know, I don't think that all that all cops. Are, I know a lot of cops. I've worked with with a lot of them. Uh, but regardless, as an organization, right, as an organization, as an institution, that's what we're talking about. Right, as an institution, at some point they need to stand up and say, "Listen, we're sorry for the way we're, we've treated you, and we want to make it better." Mm-hmm. Uh, it, rather than just that, this is in my utopian world, right? Instead of just you know putting a line up and being like, you know, fine, we're over here, we don't like you, and then so because of that, we don't like you, mm-hmm. and it just it just keeps fueling and fueling and fueling mm-hmm. the fire. I would love to see, you know, my my utopian world. I'm sure is never going to actually happen, but that people meant, didn't believe the institution of slavery would go away, and it did, right? So, you know, you never know. You yeah. know, one of the things you that baffles know. me the most, and you you, t- you discussed this, was the embattled officers, mm-hmm. and and we obviously it's the unions. We talked about this, how they continue to stay on, but. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say all all the cases you see are that way, but it seems like all these cases that you see are these officers that just have repeated offenses mm-hmm. again and again and right. again. Right. And it just baffles me as to how these gentlemen, women, whoever they are, continue to have jobs. Yeah. I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense to me because like Bob said, and, and like we all know, not not every officer is a bad officer. They're not a bad human being. You know, I mean, that's, that's how I try to look at it is, is, is a human being, you know, they're not a bad human being. But you have these people that are just shitty people. Mm-hmm. How do they not have repercussions? How are they not being taken care of? You know, I mean, that's what that gets me. And, and how do we fix that? Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's just very complicated. I mean, what we're doing in South Bend is we're pushing for a police discipline matrix, which we've not had. So we've never really had a standard process mm-hmm. as to how uh, we address officer misconduct. Right. So if you commit this offense and there's so many days of you know suspension right. with or without pay. 
we've never really had that in place. It was just sort of like loosey goosey. Let's just kind of, mm-hmm. let's, you know, and that's for the benefit of the folks who are in power, right? Like if there's, if there's disorganization among the police or the public safety board, which is the board that oversees um, poli- hi- hiring, firing police officers, promotions, uh, trainer, uh, training uh, policies and procedures. If there's disorganization there and a lack of accountability there, then folks are just able to do whatever they want to do. The Board of Public Safety, by and large, is just a big rubber stamp. I mean, mm-hmm. when you go to the meetings, there's like no discussion about why this officer is, you know, standing before them, why this officer is in this situation. It's just sort of like chief makes a recommendation. OK. And that's it. No real discussion. Nothing. All you in know, favor, I and then uh, yeah, that's on. it. Move on. Yeah, move on. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, we're trying to disrupt that by um having a um a police discipline matrix. Uh, we're also pushing for um a civilian review board, which is in city of South Bend, is in the form of a police complaint board. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also an IDI intercultural development inventory, which is essentially um I call it a test that really looks at your mindset as as to how you're able to adapt in certain situations um, with cultures and folks that you've never really been around. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like several stages of it. We have somebody who's a qualified administrator who um, can administer that test. And we actually brought that to Mayor Pete. So this is when we talk about things being political and why certain things don't get done. Mm-hmm. Right. So we went to Mayor Pete at the time and said, hey, we can administer this test and we can figure out which which officers don't necessarily have biases, but they have some work that they really need to do. Right. And if they're found to um, have uh, some kind of limitations, then we know that we can remove them from certain communities where they might not need to be, M- move them to a wider, safer community instead of being in a community that has a lot of chaos right. and a lot of black and brown folks who they don't understand. But instead of doing that, and it only takes about, a, it only takes like less than an hour mm-hmm. to generate the results for 200 and something officers. Right. You know, so it could have been done like that. But instead he said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to hire this firm for $181,000 and we're going to pay for them to produce a fancy report for us. Right. A consultant. Yeah, a consultant. I've, yeah. I've had many yeah. many consultants come into organizations I worked at. Yeah. And so after after the death of Eric Logan, um the chief of police in the mayor's office in, issued an executive order um saying that all officers when in contact with civilians had to have their body cameras on because the way that the policy was written uh, previously was that they had the discretion as to whether or not, you know, mm-hmm. they would turn it on. Now, it's not, it shouldn't be mandatory in all situations. I mean, you have like cases like rape, you know, right. where body camera doesn't need to be on, right, for the sake of someone's privacy. Right. Um, but for the most part, we need to know how our officers are interacting uh, with our civilians. Well, and then some, the, other, the other piece of that is something needs to be done with that data. And that's right. an issue that I have with too. Mm-hmm. So, like, even if they have their body cams on, nobody ever reviews the body Nobody cams reviews it. Exactly, right. unless there's like a known issue. Right. You yeah. know, so like mm-hmm. I was able to, in the case I told you about where we did the de-escalation. Yeah. I was able to, I had enough relationship with, with the, the state police post that I called them up and said, look, we're about to go, I'm about to, to produce this story. You know, let's sit down and talk and let's look at the, it, it wasn't body cam because he had shut his body cam off, but it mm-hmm. the dash cam we had. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so we sat down and watched the dash cam footage. But had I not done that, or had there not been a complaint, no one would ever look at it. So right. what needs to happen is to find out exactly what you said. How are officers interacting with the civilians mm-hmm. 
when there isn't a known problem that we know about. Right. How's how do, how does how does your officer interact with someone at a traffic stop? Right. Where everything goes normal. Right. What's his attitude? How's he speaking to this person? Mm-hmm. Because that stuff is is cyclical. So if so if, you know if a cop pulls you over, maybe you get a ticket. Maybe you don't even get a ticket. But he's an asshole to you the whole mm-hmm. time you're there, right, right. or makes racial comments or implications, even if you don't get the ticket, right? And walks away. You've you're harboring that now, mm-hmm. and then you're going to tell everybody you know about it. Mm-hmm. And now, like the just the, I'm a I'm a big love person, and I feel like there's a that you know it just ends up just building just hate 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 mm-hmm. hate on both sides, and it just it's going to it's going to collapse. It's collapsing already. Yeah, you know the the, the system, the interaction between police. And the black community is collapsing. I think it needs to be fixed. Um, you know, like I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really in support of the defend the or defund the police movement. But you know, I respect the position. I'm glad that we had you here to explain because you know our whole thing is you know so our listeners now understand it and they can make mm-hmm. up their own minds about right. it. And they should look to different cities uh-huh. uh, because different cities are doing different things. Not it's not a uniform you know kind of thing, right? Um, or a uniform prescription. So in the city of South Bend, I'm just speaking to what we're doing right. um, to address, you know, policing in our community mm-hmm. and how we are looking at how we can defund the police or divest from the police department and invest in our community. So before we go, and, and I know we've hit this a couple of times, but like, like I mentioned earlier, I talked about the, the community as a whole has started taking these steps. What can we do as the community mm-hmm. to finish these steps? You know, so, so you don't know me. I mean, we, we literally just met. Yeah. I'm a small business owner in downtown St. Joe. I tattoo for a living. I own a tattoo oh, studio. Nice. Okay. You know, I, come I, visit you. Yeah, absolutely. For a tattoo. Hell yeah. Come see me. <laughs> but I want to do my part to help. Mm-hmm. But what can I do to take these final steps to help more so than just giving lip service? That's the biggest thing is that I'm afraid of is that so mm-hmm. much of this becomes lip service. The black square, as much as I, I love the idea of it. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it raised awareness, but I need something more. What mm-hmm. more can I do to push through this? I think it's just donating time, money, it, using your platform like you are right now to uplift voices, paying attention like you are, asking these questions, engaging these kind of kinds of dialogue. It matters. I know it's not like the most radical you know, thing. But it, it, we have to start somewhere. And I think this is where we can begin to amend uh, things is by sitting down and having conversation, meeting each other out in the streets, talking about what's going on. Um, so, yeah. And as a business owner, you know, what uh, BLM is asking, you know, businesses that support the movement to do is like, OK, you know, it's cool to donate. But let's also make sure that, like, give your employees who are black a little time off, you know, during these difficult times when they're dealing with images of police brutality all over the TV, you know, allow for them to wear dreadlocks and <laughs> have braided hair. Right. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I mean, we are so policed in the workspaces just yeah. on how we dress, how we talk, what we look like, how we respond. Like, oh, you know, oh, they have an, they have an attitude. And, you know, I, I mean, when I was in college, I remember there's a woman interviewing for a position. And she was wearing, she had really long, uh, thick dreadlocks, right? And it was the summertime. In central Indiana, in Greencastle. And so she was like, oh, you know, it's hot. Like, it's, it's hot. Right. So we were able to interview with her. I'm like, man, like, she's the best candidate. She was awesome. Well, they didn't hire her because the um, vice president of student affairs or, or dean of student affairs said, oh, well, she, she didn't have a positive attitude. She kept talking about how hot it was and, and how, how tired she was. And I'm like, 
she's got a big head of she was hot and tired. dreadlocks yeah. like she yeah. was hot and sweaty you yeah. know what i'm saying like you know it's just like oh she didn't like her so those kind of things like you know we can't if we if you can't do anything on a big system level mm-hmm. right like do what you can do within your means to improve the situation i mean honestly, no that's yeah. perfect you know and that's as i said here like i have a very inclusive business i mean i tattoo we deal with everybody we love everybody we we deal with Every sexual orientation, every mm-hmm. race, mm-hmm. you know, that, none of that bothers us. But I could see right. as other businesses what mm-hmm. you're saying, you know, but it makes perfect sense. But I think that's a big thing is, is understanding where we can take those, those final steps. If they wear a Black Lives Matter mask to work, like mm-hmm. let them wear the Black Lives Matter mask yeah. to work. Don't be like Martins and, and tell them, no, you need to take this off because mm-hmm. it's offensive, you know. And I, and I think that if there's one thing that I've learned from the, you know, the, I know you don't know much about our other show, the Truth and Justice podcast, but you know that's all about a grassroots movement. Um, and we work to get wrongfully convicted people out of prison. Um, but that's it, awesome. But the, but the whole idea behind it is that it's a crazy concept. Is that every a bunch of individuals, if we come together and do something, we can make drastic change. We can. Mm-hmm. We we've walked people out of prison. You know, it's happened. Yeah. And here, I think that if we want some of these policies to change, if if, if the defund the police movement doesn't gain traction then okay what's plan b a plan b is say maybe changing some of the policies we're talking about pay attention to who you're voting for mm-hmm. get it get involved with that vote for god's sakes vote you know that that's why for the right person please right yeah <laughs> not just because they're democrat yeah but you know that that's why you know the, the democrats will never do this in my opinion is because they see the we police don't... union vote mm-hmm. as being a stronger asset to them than the black vote, mm-hmm. you know, because because the the percentage of of the black folks that are coming out to vote is so much lower than it should be. No, it's it's not that actually. Is it's, it? It's not. It's not that. It's it's that the police union is organized, right? So, like in the city of South Bend, the pol- I mean, the police don't live in the city of South Bend, so they're not vote. Most most of them are not voting for the mayor, right? But their union has a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Their union has a lot of money, a lot of influence. Right. Well, the police union can create consequences for you, right? Because officers could just say, hey, we're going to leave. A third, mm-hmm. a third of South Bend officers are eligible for, tire, for retirement. Right. Right. So they can create consequences that way. They can uh, decide to spend against the establishment candidate or back the Republican candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they, they are more highly organized and more willing to create consequences um, for Democrats or any elected official if right. they do not vote in their favor. Unfortunately, African-Americans. Uh, just because of the nature of our history and our relationship with the Democratic Party, we just, by and large, we just go in and hit Democrat. Right. And I understand that. But for my opinion, we have to create consequences for Democrats. That's why right. when, I don't know if you saw this on social media, when P. Diddy said, oh, you know, we're going to withhold the vote. Oh, they freaked out. They sent every black Democrat to come out and shame him. Because right. here is this influential uh, hip hop icon who's a mm-hmm. billionaire saying, Joe Biden, you need to, you need to, you need to have a black agenda. And if you have a black agenda, I'll, we're withholding our vote. That scared the mess out of them. You That's know, powerful. It's though. powerful. That is powerful. You know why? You, you know why? Because when Hillary Clinton ran, right, folks were like, "Look at her history. Look at what she did." So black folks, they didn't go and vote against her. They just didn't, didn't show vote. up. Right. And so when you look at those margins <laughs> where she where she lost, like in states like Michigan, right? Yeah. You have where she lost by what sixty or seventy thousand votes. And right. Jill Stein, who I voted for because I live in the state of Indiana, my mm-hmm. vote really doesn't count for a Democrat in the general right. election. So I support third party. Um, 
Joe Stein in the state got 60, 50 or 60,000 votes. Right. And they were upset about that. And when you look at that demographic data of, of, of people who voted for Joe Stein, you find that among black men in particular, 18% of black male voters, young black male voters, supported Joe Stein. Right. And it was, they were as, uh, uh, the comedian Arsenio Halt, I, I saw him say once, he's like, that election deciding between Trump and Hillary yeah. was like deciding which Menendez brother you liked better. Right. <laughs> so our, gen- our generation is thinking differently. We're saying, yeah. okay, we're not like our parents. Like, we're not just going right. to vote for the less for the two evils. Like, no, you got to come with something. You, got, you have to show me something. I need to see something on paper. I need to see some real commitments to a po- uh, your, uh, in your appointment process. I need to see who you are going to appoint on the Supreme Court. I mean, we just, w- we're tired, mm-hmm. you know, and we're, and we're tired of handing over our vote to the Democrats and not getting anything in return because all we see in our community is devastation. That's why Trump's, and I'm not praising Trump at all. I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it. That's why Trump attracted a certain contingent of black folks because when he said, well, what have the Democrats done for you? What have you got to lose? Right. People were like, these are all Democrats that we're voting for. And I can't even pay my light bill. I got code enforcement on me mm-hmm. trying to take my house. You know, my streets look, are in total disrepair right now. Right. You know, I can't get a response from any elected official when I have a concern. I can't go downtown and get answers on anything that I'm, I'm concerned about. Right. So why why vote? Right. So they didn't, we didn't necessarily go and vote for Trump, but many people either voted third party, young people voted third party or stayed home. Right. You know, I, I mean, mean, I've said it several times. I hate politics. All the listeners know I hate politics. But I, I've always thought that last election was literally, it wasn't Trump winning the election. It was Hillary losing it. Yeah. It was Hillary yeah. pushing right. people away. Yeah. Right. It right. wasn't necessarily that Trump was going to out there to win. It was that everybody just voted against Hillary, whether it was right. voting right. against her or not voting, voting for at her. all. Yeah. Right, right. Yep. And that's, you know, I'm glad you said that about, about Trump, too, because I wish the Demo, you know, said, I'm an independent. I don't like Trump. I, I can get behind some of his policies, but as a, as a human being, it scares me to death that he's our president. It dry, you know, and so this in, in this next election cycle, we looked at the, the field of the Democrat candidates. I'm like, OK, we've got we've got some options here. There, there are some candidates. You know, we, we, we did a whole episode on Cory Booker. We did one on um, Kamala Harris. Uh, we never got to. She dropped out before we got to it. But oh, okay. um, um, we did one on Yang. Okay. Um, we did one on. Bernie, I want to do one Warren. on. Uh, I want to do one on Gabbert, Tulsi Gabbert. Oh, Tulsi yeah, Gabbert. Tulsi, we talked oh, okay. about Tulsi, Tulsi Gabbert. I really liked Amy Klobuchar. I thought she was a nice moderate. But anyway, there was we had a field. We had women. We had we had LBGTQ representation. We had anybody to stop Bernie. That's what I saw. Yeah, <laughs> to me, that's well, the way I look at it. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that's but just I, my perspective. I'm sorry, I was a Bernie supporter. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Anybody still could stop Bernie. Kill <laughs> votes away from Bernie. Come on. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And then, then, I, I mean, I don't know if you feel that way, but that's how I feel. Oh, I, I think what did I, I think my opening line of one of our podcasts was the DNC is fucking on Bernie again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was the first thing out of the gate. Mm-hmm. But it was just like I'm looking at that, and and when Trump said that, and it, and when it made such a dynamic shift, because it's true. Whether if you if you're a Democrat listening to this, it's true. They can you know. And I was talking to my nephew about this, and he's like, "Well, Trump and this. Look at this violence and Trump." I'm like, what the fuck? "Ferguson." They, they, it's, been, it's been there. All these were happening during Obama. And then you yeah, go into absolutely. the Bush's years. It was yeah. happening during Bush. Right. They're right. all just talking. Right. Nobody's doing anything. Yeah. And and that was probably the yeah. smartest thing Trump ever said in his campaign was, what have they done for you? Yeah. 
And now Obama will tell you that he increased federal funding to go to police departments, uh, local police agencies, mm -hmm. um, if they, in fact, incorporated some of uh, the uh, recommendations that were uh, that came out of his 21st century policing report. And one of those recommendations was that uh, local governments move towards community policing. That is what we talk about right. um, when we talk about defunding the police. OK, so let's move towards community driven public safety. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, I. For the lack of a better term, let's not use police officers. Let's use a community interventionist, you know, like right. let's our interventionist. Like let's let's do something different. Let's not respond with violence. Some of the things that we even looked at in South Bend, we had a discussion about is um where the gun is situated. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe instead of having a gun where they can quickly grab and draw, right? Because it's just sort of like muscle memory, let's put a taser there. Right. You know, so that way. Put the gun on the other side. Yeah, put the gun on the other side, right? Mm -hmm. That way they have to at least reach over and. Right. You know, maybe there's more of a, a thought process there. Like, oh, shoot. Like, no, I don't need to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so there's been some some science that has shown that that has worked a little bit in terms of reducing um, violence in these situations. But, mm -hmm. but there's a lot that could be said. Right. Well, I, we are running out of battery and running out of time. But, man, thank you so much. Jordan, yeah, thank for, you for, for coming me. in. This is an awesome chat. We'll probably be back again sometime. I'd love to, to, to yeah. pick your brain some more. And, and just what I really appreciate is besides you kind of educating me a little bit, is just is to have a, a conversation to educate the audience, everybody listening to at least understand what Black Lives Matter is all about. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that. And Kat, thanks for hanging out with us. Yep. Yeah, thank you guys so much for joining us. We we really appreciate it. Yeah. It was a wonderful conversation. Thanks for thinking of us and reaching out. I appreciate yeah. the tweet. No oh, hey, real quick, um, yeah. how can people get a hold of you if they need to? Yeah, so they can email us at blm.southbend at gmail.com, or they can follow us on Facebook, which is just Black Lives Matter South Bend. Um, you can message us there, or you can also message and follow us on Twitter um, at, uh, at sign BLM South Bend. Oh, did I say Instagram? Twitter and, Twitter and Instagram, I'm sorry. It's at BLM South Bend? Yep, yep. That's perfect. Well, thank you guys very much. Zach, thanks for being my friend. Love you, buddy. Love you too, man. We'll see you guys next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. 
For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach can be found at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro. Driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.